0: Interest in boxing led me into this because I came across a fighter named Harry Haft, and I read a book about him, and I became fascinated. He had been a fighter in Europe in the 1930s. He was arrested as a young man and taken to Auschwitz, where he was forced to have 76 boxing matches. He won all 76 of them, and his opponents were often dragged off to gas chambers and killed, and then their bodies were later incinerated. And what I learned about him, it was very sad. He came out of Auschwitz. He survived, came to the United States. He wanted a career as a professional boxer. And it was either around 1949 or 1950. I was scheduled to have a fight with Rocky Marciano, who wasn't well known yet. He wasn't a champion. And it was at a boxing arena in Westchester, New York. And just before the fight, two mob guys came into Harry Hap's dressing room. And they told him that if he didn't go down, they would kill him. And as proof of what they meant, Two weeks earlier, they had killed another boxer. So Harry Haft, who had survived 76 boxing matches for the entertainment of sadistic SS guards, all of a sudden was put out of business by two mob bosses, and it absolutely destroyed him. He was just an angry, unhappy man for the rest of his life. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit detective Gary Jenkins.
1: Welcome, all you wiretappers. Gangland Wire back here in the studio. We're talking with our good friend, Jeffrey Sussman, back in New York City. Welcome, Jeffrey. Great to have you back.
0: Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be back.
1: Guys, Jeffrey's working on a book on Las Vegas, and he just interviewed me a little bit. What I remembered about the skim and that era of Las Vegas asked me a lot of detailed questions. There's going to be a, an overall view of Las Vegas, I would say. Right, Jeff?
0: It's going to be a view of how the mob first came to Vegas in the late 1940s. And then how corporate America kind of took it over in the 1980s, 90s.
1: Interesting. There's a guy kind of working on a documentary about this overall view from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and then the mob getting involved. It was did a little bit of research working with him on it. And it's interesting how exactly the Los Angeles police was more like the mafia out on the West Coast back then. And then they move up to Las Vegas, one of them did, and started one of the early casinos. And then the Italian mafia kind of moved in behind this Los Angeles vice commander. <laughs> I heard about this. Anyhow. But today, he's got another book that came out recently called Holocaust Fighters, Boxers, Resistors, and, and Avengers. I'm sorry, folks. I All of a sudden, I couldn't read my own writing down here. <laughs> <laughs> happens to me These guys are used to me. I, you know, I'm... I'm not the slickest podcast host in the world, but we have a good time here. But Jeff, I'm really interested in this topic. I know you have a long-standing interest in boxing for, I can't really remember the reason now, your father was, took you to boxing a lot when you were a kid, you knew a boxer?
0: Well, my father was an amateur yeah, boxer, that's... and he gave me boxing lessons when I was 12 years old. And then after that, he knew a man named Lou Stillman, who had a famous boxing gym in New York called Stillman's. And he took me there, and, and Lou Stillman arranged for a, uh, a middleweight. Nothing ever happened with him, who gave me a 10 boxing lessons. And this was in the late 1950s. And the unbelievable price for the 10 boxing lessons was $100. <laughs> and when I finished, I got a, a Stillman's Gym t-shirt, and uh, I asked this guy, the middleweight, if I could get in the ring and box with someone. Yeah. And I was a little skinny kid and said to me, Don't be an idiot. <laughs> You're never going to get out of the ring again. <laughs> You're going to be killed. (laughs) Yeah, you
1: were in Stillman's Gym in the 1950s. You were kind of in the middle of a bunch of mobsters around there, I got
0: a feeling. (laughs) There were a lot of mobsters, and that's where the subject of one of my books, Rocky Graziano, used to train. And as a matter of fact, the only film that I think is available of Stillman's Gym is in the movie Somebody Up There Likes Mm -hmm. Me, which is a film about Rocky Graziano, and part of it was filmed in that gym. I think it was torn down in the early 1960s, and there's an apartment building there. Interesting. I just met
1: a guy named Fratto from Des Moines, and he said his uncle was in the plane when Rocky Garciano went down. That was Rocky Marciano. Or, I mean, oh, that was Rocky Marciano. That's right. I got my Rockies mixed up. A lot of people yeah. do. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about the Holocaust fighters. How'd you get interested in that? How'd you even find out
0: about this? Such an interesting topic. Well, interest in boxing led me into this because I came across a fighter named Harry Haft. And I read a book about him, and I became fascinated. He had been a fighter in Europe in the 1930s. He was arrested as a young man and taken to Auschwitz, where he was forced to have 76 boxing matches. He won all 76 of them. And his opponents were often dragged off to gas chambers and killed, and then their bodies were later incinerated. And what I learned about him, it was very sad. He came out of Auschwitz He survived came to the United States. He wanted a career as a professional boxer. And it was either around 1949 or 1950. He uh, was scheduled to have a fight with Rocky Marciano, who wasn't well known yet. He wasn't a champion. And it was at a boxing arena in Westchester, New York. And just before the fight, two mob guys came into Harry Haft's dressing room, and they told him that if he didn't go down, they would kill him. And as proof of what they meant, two weeks earlier, they had killed another boxer. So Harry Half, who had survived, 76 boxing matches for the entertainment of sadistic SS guards, all of a sudden was put out of business by two mob bosses, and it absolutely destroyed him. He was just an angry, unhappy man for the rest of his life. And his son told me, you know, how badly his father treated people, what a bad temper he had. But when the son matured, the son realized why his father was that way, of the terrible things that he had gone through, and he was able to forgive his father the way he behaved. And he sent a, a very touching letter that he wrote to his father in which he forgives him for his bad temper and, and so forth. But learning about Harry Hathbun led me into finding out about other boxers. So there was a boxer from Tunisia, a Jewish boxer named Victor Perez, who became a French boxing champion in the featherweight division. In fact, he became the youngest European champion in the featherweight division. I think he was 20 or 21 years old. He was a small guy, his most featherweight Sorry, He was maybe 5' to weigh 119 pounds. He was very handsome, and women liked him very much. And he had an affair with one of the most popular French movie stars of the era. And she was beautiful, and he was handsome, and they got a lot of press together. However, when the Nazis conquered France, she decided that her future lay with the Nazis rather than with this boxer. Yes. And so she started an affair with a captain in the Wehrmacht, and to show her goodwill towards the Nazis, she betrayed her former lover. Mm. And he was arrested and also sent to Auschwitz, where he had a number of fights. And as the Allies were closing in on Germany from the West and the Russians were closing in on them from the East, uh, Nazis wanted to evacuate the death camps so there wouldn't be evidence of what they had done. And they had what was called a death march. And Perez was on this uh, death march. And he saw uh, several slices of bread off to the side of the road. And he went to pick them up to give them to himself and to some of his friends because they were starving. And an SS guard saw him and shot him twice in the back of the head and killed him. Then there was another fellow named Nathan whose who son I also interviewed. Nathan had 200 fights in Auschwitz and won all of them, wow. which was extraordinary. And he had a different attitude than Harry Haft. He was just happy to be alive. He just wanted to enjoy life. And after he was freed from the concentration camps, he went to what was then Palestine before it became Israel. And he joined the Israel Defense Forces and fought in the Revolutionary War, I guess you would call it, where Israel became a country. And then he emigrated to the United States and opened a trucking company in Los Angeles. And his son told me that his father was just the happiest person in the world. He was happy to survive, happy to have children, happy to be married happy that he felt blessed in many ways and then there was another guy named Salomo Rouch who was from Greece and had been the middleweight boxing champion of Greece and he was arrested and also had probably a 100 fights but they made him fight when he was almost starving to death and where he got the will to fight what was extraordinary that he was able to muster the strength you know on a diet of one slice of bread and a cup of soup a day uh, to fight and he won all these fights and he survived and he also went to Israel after the war. There was another man who wasn't Jewish. He was a gypsy. His name was Johann Trollmann. There are two kinds of gypsies in Europe. One is called the Romas and one is called the Sinti's. He was a Sinti, And he was, I think he was a light heavyweight boxing champion of Germany. But the Germans hated him because he wasn't an Aryan. And after he won the light heavyweight boxing championship, they took the title away from him because it should be a Nazi who won. So he had another fight after that and they told him he better lose the fight, otherwise they would kill him. And to kind of make fun of the Nazis, he was a very suave-looking guy, black hair, he dyed his hair blonde, and he put white baking powder all over his entire body and came into the ring looking like an ersatz Nazi. He was very quick on his feet, which the Nazis hated. The German style of boxing was to stand toe-to-toe and trade punches. And this guy's dancing around the ring, landing one punch after another and the Nazis swinging at the air and not connecting. And yet they awarded the Nazis the win in that fight. they drafted him into the German army as an infantryman. And he was wounded and then sent home to recover from his wounds. And then they said to him, well, you're no use to us anymore because you've been wounded. You can't fight. So we're sending you to Auschwitz, right. where he had a number of fights. And there was a capo in Auschwitz, which was someone who was a prisoner, but was made like a guard. He was a trusted guard, even though and he was forced to fight this guy. He beat the guy, and so the guy was furious at him and put him on a severe work detail. And while Trollman was picking up garbage on this work detail one day, the capo came up behind him and battered him to death with a shovel Mm. and killed him. So these were the five boxers. And then I wrote about two guys who managed to escape from Auschwitz. I didn't know until I did my research. 900 attempted escapes, and 155 of them were successful.
1: Wow. And, Let me ask and, a question, Jeff, about this Auschwitz boxing program. I mean, that was... What did you learn about that? I'm just like thinking, well, what is the deal here? Really?
0: Oddly enough, when I, when I was doing the research on this, I read Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler, and Hitler has a lot of information in there about boxing, about how he thinks all the Germans should learn to box because it'll make them strong fighters, when it comes time for a war. And all the young kids in the Hitler Youth Movement had to learn to box. They weren't very good boxers, but they had to learn to box. So uh, boxing was a very popular sport in Germany in the 1930s. Max Schmeling, who had been the heavyweight boxing champion of Germany, was probably the most popular athlete in the entire country because he was such a good boxer. So when the Nazis started operating the death camps, the SS guards wanted entertainment for themselves and initially they would have an SS guard fight a Jewish boxer, but the SS guards kept losing, so they didn't want to put any more SS guards into the ring with the Jewish boxers. So they made sure that the Jewish boxers would fight other inmates instead, and they would bet not on the outcome because they knew who the out- but they would bet on, on how many rounds it would take for the loser to lose. These became so popular that they were bringing in high-ranking officers from Berlin to watch the fights, and sometimes a high-ranking officer would bring in a ringer who was supposed to be an important heavyweight boxer. And this happened once where a major general brought in this big hulking uh, boxer. I think it was to fight, it was either Harry Haft or Nathan Chappell. I can't remember now which one. And initially, the Chapeau or Haft was losing, but they were very good tacticians. And they saw that the guy who was much bigger and stronger than they had really no strategy of how to win. So they developed a strategy, and they defeated him. They beat him. The major general was so upset about this, he had his ringer taken off to the gas chambers and killed. <laughs> God. It was extraordinary. Plus that, he had to pay the guards the money that he lost on his bet. <laughs> uh, oh, I bet he
1: was unhappy.
0: What was off about that? <laughs> they were like Roman gladiators. Really? That's what it was like. That's what it was like. It was, you know, they'd send these two guys out to kill each other and see who survived. And bet and they on would, the result. Would, That's... Uh... Boy, that's <laughs> cruel. I
1: mean, it was some cruel stuff going on, but
0: that's like,
1: that's almost even worse. It's unbelievable.
0: And at the end, you know, after the war, there were these trials. And a lot of these guys who oversaw the boxing matches were tried as war criminals. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the judge and so forth, some of the sentences were fairly lenient and some of them were more uh, stringent. Hmm. But it was fascinating what these guys had to go through. Well, you mentioned and, something and, about you had resistors, too, who were boxers. What was the story with that? Well, there was this one guy, he was fascinating. He was a Polish Catholic named Witold Pilecki, who had been in the Polish Home Army, which fought against the Nazis, and he heard about what was going on at Auschwitz. So he put himself in a position of being arrested and taken to Auschwitz. I mean, in fact, he volunteered to be a prisoner at Auschwitz, and he stayed there for two and a half years and secretly operated a shortwave radio, sending information about Auschwitz to Polish exiles in London. And after two and a half years, he escaped and went back to Warsaw, issued this incredible report about what was going on, because nobody really knew about the atrocities. And he fought in the uh, Polish Home army against the Nazis until the end of the war. And then the Soviets came in and took over Poland after the war, because he was not only an anti-fascist, he was an anti-communist. And so the Russians arrested him. They tortured him into giving a confession that he was an anti-Stalinist. And the torture was really severe where they pulled out his fingernails and stuff like that. And then they executed him for being a traitor to the Soviets. And it wasn't until the 1980s that a statue of him was finally erected in Warsaw as a Holocaust hero and as a patriot. But his name had been wiped out of all the history books up until that time. He was an amazing man. And then there was another guy named Rudy Verba, who is a biochemist, originally. And he was dragged off. One of the terrible things that he said that he saw, he was put on this detail of having to take bodies out of the gas chambers and stick them into the ovens. And he took out this one body, and the guy was still alive. And the SS guard said, I don't care if he's still alive. Put him in the oven. And put this guy in the oven. And incinerate him and he said it stayed with him for the rest of his life when he heard you know the guy as the flames engulfed this guy he heard him scream and then it just stopped this guy was such a brilliant doctor that he went on to become a very famous research scientist first in london and then in canada and he was even knighted by the queen for his medical research and then finally i deal with the group of avengers they were fascinating they were led by a man named Abakovna, who was a latvian and he organized a thousand latvians fight against the Nazis in an underground. For the last couple of years of the war and then three years after the war, they hunted down Nazi war criminals and they wound up killing 1,500 Nazi war criminals. And one of the ways they would do it after the war is they would dress as British soldiers and they would go to the home of a wanted Nazi war criminal. And they would say, we need you for questioning. Would you please come with us? And they put him in the car. It looked like a British military car. And they drive to the woods and they take him out into the woods. And they said, you know, you're guilty of all these war crimes. And now it's time for us to take our revenge. And they shoot him in the head and leave him there. And they did that to 1,500 of them. Wow. And this guy, Abba Kovner, eventually became the, oddly enough, it's strange that he's such a military man. He became the poet laureate of Israel. Hmm. Uh, Only in years. Israel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I found all of this stuff fascinating. Yeah. You know, talking to the sons of these two boxers just fascinating. The stories they told me about what they heard from their really? fathers. Just experience. the
1: fact that they had such a, a big boxing program in Auschwitz.
0: And- it was amazing. These guys had to fight once or twice a week, every week. Yeah. And Harry Hafton, Nathan, Nathan Chapout, because they wanted them to fight. They gave them a little extra food, like an yeah. extra slice of bread or an extra cup of soup. It was just amazing. And you know, Nathan Chap, when he got there, he probably weighed about 200 pounds. When he left, if he weighed a hundred pounds, it was amazing. And same Greek boxer, he was a big husky guy, he was very muscular. He looked like a skinny kid. Oh, I uh, can imagine. You know,
1: we've right. uh, seen, we've all seen those images of American troops came in, the first images of people in the uh, concentration camps. It's beyond belief. I still, I still, I can't believe that we did that. You know, anybody and Germans. I mean. God, they were just to me. They're just like me. They just happened to live in Germany. I mean, I just you know they organized, and it wasn't like they were a tribe of barbarians doing shit like this. They were. It was the most civilized country in, in Europe. I know, and organized and successful in many ways. It was just
0: I don't know. They were known for their scientists, their yeah. their composers, their writers. A lot of famous geniuses that came out of Germany, and that it could be taken over by this madman is just unbelievable. Yeah, it is, it is.
1: All right, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Sessman, author of Holocaust Fighters, Boxers, Resistors, and Avengers. Really interesting stories, interesting stuff. You've got several other books you wanna tell our folks about them.
0: My first boxing book was called Barney Ross and Max Bear, Jewish Heroes of Boxing. I'm very happy to report that someone bought the movie rights to yeah. that. Uh, they want to make a movie primarily about Max Baer, especially because he felt that the Cinderella movie was very dishonest and its portrayal the Max Fair, and then my next book was a biography of Rocky Graziano, who was one of my boxing heroes when I was growing up as a teenager, and who I got to meet once, and was just a very nice guy. I really liked him very much, and then after that, I wrote a book called uh, Boxing in the Mob, about how the mob controlled boxing through much of the 20th century and into the early part of the 21st century. And then after that, I wrote a book called Big Apple Gangsters, The Rise and Fall of the Mob in New York, beginning with Prohibition and going up also into the beginning of the 21st century, ending with, I don't know if you remember, the arrest of these two mafia cops who were on the payroll of the Colombo family. And they committed a number of murders on behalf of the Colombo family. And then my Holocaust Fighters book, which was just published. And then I'm working on a book about Las Vegas, which will come out in 2022.
1: All right. Jeffrey, you're talking about having 30,000 more words to write and got 50 in. <laughs> it just makes me want <laughs> <more. laughs> 'cause Because, you know, I did that one, but I did a couple of shorter books. Did that one. I've kind of tried to look at maybe... Doing a nonfiction, but maybe blurring the lines a little bit about my own experiences during the Savella-Spiro War, which I did my last documentary about brothers against brothers the Savela spiro War. And so, you know, I started writing and finally I, what I do is I just sit down and just write and write and write and then I quit. I'm not trying to make it look like anything, and uh, as soon as I get maybe 10 15,000 words in, then I'm going to take a look, because <laughs> it's
0: hard. You know what I do? I do a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline. Yeah. I start, and, and I figure out how many words I need for each chapter hmm. to have the full amount of words for the entire book. And, and I try to map it out so that I have the right number of words for each chapter, and so that each chapter will also be pretty much the same length. Beautiful, I, yeah. I, I want I once tried doing it without a chapter-by-chapter outline, and I kind of got lost. Interesting.
1: All right. Well,
0: I'm going to let you get on about
1: your business, and I'll get on about mine. It's really great to talk to you again. I enjoy this very much, Gary.
0: Okay, take care, Gary. Bye-bye.
1: Well, I hope all you guys enjoyed this most recent episode of Gangland Wire. You know, I've been doing this for over six years now. It'll be seven years next year. I have close to 2 million downloads. I will have by. Probably when you hear this, I'll be going over 2 million downloads. That's pretty good starting from maybe 10 or so of my friends that first week or two. And it's grown little by little. As you know, I don't really interrupt you with advertisements like some of the others do. So don't forget to help me out with a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer, even a good cigar at Venmo at Gangland Wire. Or hit me up on my PayPal button on the donate page on the website. Now, I really enjoy researching and composing these stories. I like talking to the former cops and agents and mobsters and authors that contribute so much to my education and your education and our enjoyment. We try to do this in an enjoyable manner. So I appreciate everything you do. And also appreciate it if, if you just listen, because I like to see all the downloads down there. i like to get this up to a million downloads for every episode. Thanks, folks. <laughs> Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.